Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 220. I'm your host, Derek Moore, back with me once again by popular demand, my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastricelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Doing well, Derek. Pop- popular demand? Are you telling me that there, there's been demand for me on the podcast? No. Yes. No, no of course yeah. there is. They, they like the episode. <laughs> they like the episodes where we disagree on stuff. We banter a little bit. That's uh, that's generally a thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, it's only been a week, but I feel like in market time, a lot's happened, but nothing's happened, Jay. Like a lot could have happened. You're right. Like it was a very meh, but it could have been a whoa, if you know what I mean. Well, let me actually start there. I was going to talk about the debt ceiling and I'll get to that, but just CPI came out. I don't know if CPI moves the needle anymore. And I think part of it is there's been enough forecasting that's been close enough that, I mean, think about that. CPI comes out and the market doesn't even, was it like basically unchanged that day? I mean, it, it capped up, right? The market kind of really liked that number and then it went negative and then it came back up. I guess it did have a nice little journey that day and then finished with a fizzle. Right. It hardly moves. I mean, Jay, even the Fed decision didn't really move the needle that much. I mean, that was now over a week ago. Right. But the market didn't go crazy that day. And I think part of it is. This is the most communicative, I think that's the word, Fed. In that they talk a lot. Everyone talks a lot. And, you know, I mean, there's a press conference after every Fed meeting now. And, you know, you think about back when Alan Greenspan, Greenspan, you had the briefcase indicator. How big is his briefcase? You know, CNBC showing it. (laughs) Right, right. As he's walking, like the camera was focused on his briefcase. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I also feel like even, I mean, the chair of the Fed certainly did some media, but all these people are giving speeches and stuff. So I don't think it was a surprise. Right, Jay? Uh, the, the action that they took was not a surprise. The market didn't react poorly. You never know, though, what they're going to say, right? A lot of the, you know, it's almost like earnings, right? Future, you know, forward-looking guidance is usually more impactful on stock prices than what has already happened. However, it is kind of a, hey, here's the number. We're going to, ch- you know, change rates. We're going to raise rates, which is what they did. And then they've been kind of indicating if they're going to continue to do so. I mean, that could have thrown us for a loop, but you're right. They're... They're, I think they're being consistent and the market is not reacting violently to it. Well, the other thing that the market's not reacting violently to, although I think, are we in for a little May malaise, is the debt ceiling. And if you were to listen to the media, you would think the sky is falling. But you and I know better not to just you know broadly listen blindly, I guess we'll say, to the media. Um, because when you look at some of the, okay, so let me start here. There is a, the bond, the VIX of, of bonds is called the move index. And I won't bore everybody with just what exactly it is and, and things like that. But it's, if you look at the move index, which is, uh, they call it the, the B of a, I think it's B of a Merrill Lynch U S bond market option volatility estimate index. They call it the move index. Yeah, it's it's a lot shorter than that whole big long name, though. That's good. They should just call it the move index. 
And by the way, move, move meaning, right, market option volatility estimate. I think they're using those letters to come up with it. It really doesn't say anything about bonds, but you just happen to have to know it's bonds. That's right. That's right. When you hear move index, that's bonds. So people can't see our screens, but I will tell you today, I think it was right around 120 and a half. To give you an idea of what it was not too long ago, by not too long, probably a month ago, it was like 189, meaning it was a lot higher. If you can't, if you don't know anything, it's it's not spiking. In fact, today it, it moved lower. So the bond market isn't really saying there's going to be some crazy defaults and things like that. Like it's not priced in. Wouldn't you agree with that? At least in bonds. Uh, no, yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, you know it's, the only thing I'd say, Derek, that's that's changed a little. So you're right from the options perspective. And that volatility index, I would agree. Um, when you look at the yield curve, you know the re- the one month bonds, have, you know, have really kind of popped up. Like I think, you know, on May 11th, which is yesterday, but you know, I'm not sure when everybody will listen to this. The one month was trading or yielding 5.8. Like that's that indicates what a little bit of uh, sell off. It indicates you know, uh, concern about that, right? Usually higher rates mean higher risk. And so, whereas comparatively, like if you were uh, to look at, I don't know, um, you know, let's, heck, let's just go out to two months, right? That was 4.8. So I think there's a little weirdness in there, the really short, short end of the curve, but look, that's nothing new, right? That has been strange for a while now. But I just, if there's any fear, maybe, Derek, that's where I would see it. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think my number was uh, more like 5.38, 5.4 for something like a one-month treasury. Three months or 5.2 rounded, you know, 6.512. And this is also after the Fed raised 25 bips. So you would expect bonds, at least on the shortest end, to sort of reflect that. What is different, though, is for a long time, paper, by paper, I mean bonds, one month and in, was actually yielding less than the Fed funds rate, which is odd. I mean, normally the Fed, that's part of why they do the reverse repos, to create an an off-ramp for people who need near money paper, near money investments, like money market funds have to put the money to work. They put it in really, really ultra short duration. U.S. Treasuries, well, too much money is going after them. It pushes the yield down, the price up. But I would agree. I think that's maybe, if you were going to point to anything, probably. Now, we're not, I don't think we're seeing anything. I mean, we'll get to volatility in a second. But the the other part of this is, Credit default swaps. And the only, the other, I was going to say the only place we're really seeing that is credit default swaps. The the cost to insure the debt has been rising and it spiked a little bit. Now, for anybody who wants to know what a credit default swap is, I'll put a link in the show notes. I actually did a whole, I watched uh, The Big Short and I explained through that movie what they're talking about. One of the things is credit default swaps. So basically, a credit default swap is if you own one of those, and like individual traders aren't and investors aren't in this market. This is an over-the-counter market. It's big institutions. But basically, let's say the swap rate's 180 basis points. 
it means it would cost 1.8% a year to buy that insurance. And if the thing that you're betting against or insuring against fails, so let's say you do it on a U.S. Treasury, a one-year U.S. Treasury, and the Treasury defaults and the recovery rate is you know, $40 per bond out of 100, you make the difference between that 140. Anyway, I put a link to that. But that's, I think that's kind of a thin market too. Yeah, let me, let me, I mean, it, it's a hedge, right? It's protection. Or speculation. Uh, well, okay, that's true. You could, just, you could just trade that, right? That's true, but that, right. It appreciates when the underlying asset looks like it's going to fail. But yeah, I mean, the treasury curve is a little bit funky. Talk about that, Jay, because I know you've been watching that. Well, I mean, that's it's kind of what I was just talking about there a second ago, where um, you have you have the uh, the Fed funds rate, right, and uh, which is what five hundred to five and a quarter, right? So basis points five to five and a quarter percent, and um, you start to go out on the curve. The first month, there's this pop there, right? I, and I know we should we should probably share that link, the US Treasury Yield Curve.com link. It's easy to just kind of see what the yield curve look like looks like. And at two months it drops. And then really you get some stabilization from like three months to six months. You're trading at about what Fed funds rate are. Funds gosh, Fed funds rate is, and then it starts to drop, which now you have the inversion that everybody's been talking about for quite some time. We've talked about it multiple times on uh, the podcast before, but you know, for me, when I when I when I think about, you know, is there concern in the bond market? Uh, I, it's it's it almost is unfathomable to me that I mean, I guess they have to pick which one they would default on, right? Like it feels like why would they default on the one month bond when you could default on the thirty year and just make it up next month, right? Wouldn't you just you know pay out the one that's one month out? But the market is not telling you that. If they were to have a problem, it tells you it looks like there's the most risk in the one month bond. So I don't know. It just it's to me, it's just, again, um, the volatility in the bond market has just been such an interesting uh, thing to watch last year and this year. And it continues to be interesting. And I, the only thing I would add to it is the market may be starting, not the Fed funds futures, but the, the bond market itself, the way the yields look starting to believe that the Fed is going to keep rates where they, where it is for the rest of the year, right? When the six-month is yielding what the Fed funds rate is, it tells me, yeah, there's a good chance they're not cutting rates this year. Now, the futures market is telling you something completely different, right? That We've talked about that in the past as well. You know, by the end of the year, right, they're working in, you know, almost the 99% that there's an ease in rates, so there's again there's a disconnect between what the bondholders are telling you and the futures traders are telling you. I guess that's what makes a market, right? Buyers and sellers of the of the same topic. So you did ask, I mean, about prioritizing it. I I suppose that it's not only the interest, but then it's the the principal. And but so let's say you know a bond is going to mature and the treasury runs out of money. From what I'm seeing, though, is they're still running auctions, even though Yellen said, you know, hey, we're already at the debt ceiling. We can't issue any more debt. Like if something matures and you sell a new bond simultaneously to pay off the old bond, 
you're not increasing your debt. It's the same amount of debt. So that's one thing. I mean, they're still doing auctions right now. Sure. I mean, in a way, it's a little bit of a pyramid scheme if, if you can't pay it out, right? Let me bring in new money to pay out the old money. I did not just call the U.S. Fed and Treasury process a Ponzi scheme, but I'm just saying it feels a little like that based on the comment you just made. I just wrote that down as a, a show title. Should I not put that as a show title, Jay? Is that wrong? <laughs> Government is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. But no, I mean, so here's the other thing too. And I, I think I'm going to make a generalized statement and then I'll, I'll sort of walk it back. The, me, the media is doing a disservice when they don't explain. And I think Yellen and some of the, the officials are doing a disservice when they actually talk about defaulting on the debt. And the reason is, as we just talked about, is, as debt comes due, you can issue new debt. You're not going to raise the, the debt ceiling. The other thing is they could prioritize payments. And we're bringing in, I say we, like the federal government's bringing in revenue every week, payroll taxes, uh, you know, through the paycheck, collected things like that, excise taxes, import tax, any, any number of things. So like they're bringing in revenue. And they could say, well, we're going to prioritize the revenue that comes in. We're going to pay off the, we're going to make sure we pay the interest. We're going to make sure we pay social security or other things. And the research, I'm going to make a very sarcastic remark, but like the research on whether crickets listening to Metallica 24-7 for seven days straight causes X, Y, or Z, maybe they have to pause that. So I think there's more flexibility, like just because the debt ceiling is there and just because they say, well, it's running out of money for what? Because you're still bringing in money. And then I don't know, Jay, I'll, I'll stop there, see if you want to comment on any of that. But well, of course, right? They're going to prioritize what they're, what they're going to spend on. And you can do things like, listen, we shut down the government before when there wasn't enough money. It happens pretty frequently. The market never loves when that happens, but right, it happened in 2018, 2013. Like, so you could decide, they could decide where they want to spend the money that they actually have coming in. Because you're right, there is regular money flowing into the treasury. Uh, I, yeah, I look, I think it's one of those things that, um, you right, shut down parks, shut down, you know, just decide where you're going to flow that cash through. It feels to me like not paying bonds, treasury bonds back should be the last thing that they would do because they understand the consequences. Now, it doesn't mean it, it helps the ratings of those bonds. It doesn't mean it helps the fear and risk of it, but it, you know, it would like, it'd probably have to be the last thing that they, you know, hey, we've run out of cutting everything else. I guess we can't, you know, pay back these, you know, bonds that we've, we've had outstanding. So, yeah. The other thing you hear too is, well, this is already budgeted. We're just paying for what is already budgeted. But Jay, let's, let's just pretend like we're, we're running a, um, a small business and we budgeted in to buy a new computer, but we don't have the cash flows. Just because it's budgeted doesn't mean you have to spend it. I mean, that's typically what happens in governments, right? Because they use the budget, but they don't have to spend everything that's budgeted. They're, anyway, but look, that's that's neither here nor there. By the way, I did want to mention, Jay. I was going to say that that's the argument, right, that I think the president is making like, hey, look, this is all agreed, stuff we agreed to, to pay for, right? And then your point is, yeah, it doesn't mean we actually have the cash to do it or we have to do it. And I think that's what the negotiation is. 
Yeah, it's like you and your wife saying, hey, we agreed to travel to Bora Bora on a private spaceship. Oh, okay. Well, we agreed that and we budgeted it in, but maybe we don't have the money now, so we're not going to just go. Spaceships just got a lot more expensive now, right? That's right. I will mention, too, that people have said that the U.S. has never defaulted on debt. Uh, I asked ChatGP, our old friend ChatGPT to, to some, I knew this, by the way, beforehand, but I said, I want ChatGPT to, to summarize this. And there, uh, 1979, there was a temporary technical default due to a combination of issues. And this is April and early May of 1979. Oh, it's May right now. So is there something in that? I don't know. The U.S. Treasury failed to redeem T-bills on time due to a backlog in paperwork and caused by a large volume of Treasury securities that matured at the end of April. And the Fed switched from issuing physical securities to book entry, so electronic. And apparently there was a strike by employees of the Bureau of Public Debt. I didn't know there was a Bureau of Public Debt, but apparently there was. And there was a strategic default. So I guess, by the way, what would happen is if there was a default, those bonds would go into default, but it doesn't mean the people wouldn't necessarily get their money. Like a bond goes into default, it could be trading without the interest and without, they'd probably have to extend the expirations. But anyway, Jay, there you go. 1979. This weekend, if somebody asked you, now you know. I It sounds like a clerical error to me, right? And a little bit of uh labor labor force issues uh, versus, say, a credibility or cash flow reason. So I would still feel comfortable saying the U.S. is – so maybe we could caveat that. It's never defaulted uh, before for uh, uh, cash flow or credibility issues. It was technical slash – I'm going to say labor. I'm going to say that sounds like – you had somebody who's like, ah, we're going to go home on Friday. Oops, we forgot to process the treasuries. I know that's not it. Yeah, I, uh, I will say that uh, 1861 and 17, anyway, let's, uh, I will, we'll save those for another time. So, all right. The other thing I wanted to, to bring up, Jay, is we're not seeing panic in the options market vis-a-vis implied volatilities especially on the short end. So what are you seeing there, Jay? Kind of take us through that. Yeah. So, you know, volatility is what, right? Volatility is kind of the projection. When we talk about implied volatility, not what actually happened, but is is a projection in the options prices that tells us, you know, how much we should expect the market to move at a certain time or by a certain date. And you can imply how much the market is going to move by the price of the options. And uh, when you look at what's implied in the price of the options, especially really kind of close to, you know, like a short period of time, like two weeks, 10 market days or, or, you know, short, short periods like that, actually a week and a half, right? 10 days. When you look at the implied volatility, meaning the price in the options, what they're bracing for. It is, it looks like some of the lowest that we've seen. So everybody knows the VIX, right? The volatility index. And it usually hovers, I don't know, somewhere. Well, it, it, it obviously varies, but it's a 30-day index. Right now, if I was to look at it after today, I'm looking, it's a 17. So that tells you, you know, 
the amount of movement that's expected. And the higher that number, the bigger the movement of what's expected in the market. Well, at 17, by the way, that's kind of on the low end over the last few years. Um, but when you look at volatility even closer, like the 10-day volatility, it's in like the 12 range. So the market is in the near term not displaying a lot of concern or speculation. Now, a lot of people equate volatility with fear. It's not really fear to us. It's more speculation up or down, right? Speculation can go both ways, as we just discussed with the uh, default swaps. So when you see a low volatility, it tells you that there's a lot of complacency and not a lot of fear. People aren't paying up for protection, People aren't paying up for big swings up or down. It's, you know, it's actually very much on the low end um, compared to where, let's say, a 30-day or 90-day volatility is. Now, those are, we just talked about the VIX at 17. That's kind of around where the 30-day volatility is. If you go out a little farther into, like, say, 90 days out, when you look at information like that, you know, 90 days are also in that 16, 17 range. So it's, it's um, you know, the market is really displaying a ton of fear that you would normally see with this kind of pending move, right? And I can't really blame the market for doing this because when you look at the actual movements every day in the market over the last few, you know, weeks, it's been fairly muted. You may have some intraday moves like we talked about with the jobs number, how we were up and even the Fed number, how uh, we were up and then we were down, but we finished flat. There's a lot of days that we're finishing close to flat, right? Within 25 basis points of where we started. And so the volatility of the end of the day outcome is actually doing a good job uh, of predicting that the market's not moving very much or not going to move very much. And it's, it's not, it's been fairly, you know, range bound and tight. Now, all right, so I'm going to put a point on that, Derek, before we kind of move to what it means, but uh, going forward or what we've seen going forward. But any, anything you want to comment on just this low volatility in the near term and how there doesn't seem to be a lot of fear you know, built into the market? Yeah, I mean, and I look, the other thing I, I looked at, Jay, is the, so the S&P or the SPY options. I looked into both. And there's daily expirations now. And I, what I was trying to see is, you know, sometime if there's uh, some sort of event that's on a particular day, you'll almost see a kink in the implied volatility curve. And what I mean is kind of like you were talking about the 10-day and the 30-day. But if you look at every day's expiration, is there one that's not like the other that's really high? I would say it's as expected. I mean, it, it's a it's not more volatile nearest than further out. The only thing I could see, and you know, the market's closed right now, but there's a little bit of a a step up, let's say, right in the in the first week of June. But it's not material. And what I mean by that is if you go back and there was the election where Quebec was going to vote whether to secede from Canada, you could look at the implied volatility on the Canadian dollar. And you would see this big, massive like thing that didn't look like the others right around that election period. So it's it's not an event driven. There's nothing in the chain that tells me there is an event coming, Jay. No, that, and that by the way, that happened around Brexit. I don't I don't know why you picked the Quebec's 
Quebec uh, scenario, but like this around any kind of big event, right? It'll happen around even like a CPI number coming out or an election, Brexit. We saw a lot of, you know, a, a lot of pop and Ivy just around that date, right? Um, you could see it in individual stocks around their earnings, right? Earnings will have a, you know, an option that's expiring just after earnings will have a higher implied volatility. It's very normal. And there's none of that right now in the, in the option chain. None of it. I'm not saying nothing will happen. I'm just saying the options market is very, is, is definitely downplaying any risk there or any big movement. So Jay, you had uh, kind of paused for a second and said, so what does this mean? So Jay, what does it mean? You know, when we, <laughs> so I'm going to go now a 180 on you. Historically, when this near-term volatility gets low compared to the rest of the chain, um, it actually signals a little too much complacency in the marketplace, right? So while we're saying, hey, the options market isn't really predicting a big move, the options market can be wrong, right? And when you look at those 10-day volatility numbers and when they're low, like below this 12 range that we're talking about, not always, most of the time not, but sometimes you can have almost like a coiling spring reaction where all of a sudden the volatility has been compressing, 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 and then an explosion in volatility and a very dramatic move over the next 20 to 60 days. So it's it's so while I'm telling you the market isn't really predicting anything, I think it's it it's when you look at this near-term volatility being so much lower than the 30, 90, even the 180-day volatility, um, it can be a signal that uh, it's quiet, too quiet, right? Something's coming, but nobody's positioning themselves for it. And then there's a rush to get properly positioned. So, you know, I know we're kind of, but certainly not making any, any dramatic posi- uh, projections there, but we have definitely seen that happen in the past multiple times uh, when this, you know, near-term volatility gets really, really tight compared to the 30 and 90-day volatility where you get this explosion of movement. I mean, it's part of the reason, Jay, why the core things that we do involve either being hedged or buffered. And, you know, I know you you said in your book, uh, which what a great Mother's Day gift that would be, uh, buy and hedge, right? Yes, yes. It's still not too late. Um, when you're hearing this, it's okay, right? You have a long time to always take care of a parent and uh, give them a wonderful gift, which I think pairs nicely with uh, the broken ch- pie chart, which I think would also be a lovely pairing of uh, of books. Yeah, no, both. Uh, thank you, Jay, for mentioning my book as well, Bro- Broken Pie Chart and Buy and Hedge, available both on Amazon. We'll put links to them in the show notes, of course. They, they you know, what should really happen is when you go to Amazon. If you click in one, it should be, hey, did you know you should pair it with this? I don't know how we could have that happen. I guess you have to pay for that, right? Uh, no, no, we could work that out. We should have them paired together. That's You're absolutely right. Why would we? Yeah. All right. So I lost my train of thought here. And right, so we, we were talking about, you know, the implied volatility compression versus kind of farther out dates. I think the, the point of, of us going through this is, for all the stuff you're hearing about the impending doom of a debt ceiling, we're not necessarily seeing it in the, the volatility in bonds. We're not seeing it 
reflected in the volatility in stocks. And that either means everyone is wrong. And as you say, you know, it's the choir before the storm, or maybe this is all priced in already. Maybe that's the thing, Jay. Well, it could be. And, you know, where, where you were going was this is why we don't make predictions and this is why we hedge, right? We, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. And, uh, you know, and that's okay. On the long run, we like to still be long-term invested in the market. Markets generally go up more often than they go down. I know it doesn't feel that way right now, but it's, it is true uh, statistically. And, uh, but, you know, you can have these periods of time where the market does dip and, you know, not sure when that's coming. So we just, we naturally hedge, right? We always, in our main strategies, we actually have protection to limit the participation in the downward movement of the stock market. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, you know, when you have events like this, it takes the guesswork out of it. It doesn't mean you and I don't like to read the tea leaves, right? We still like to watch it occur, but I, I like kind of sitting uh, uh, in the movie theater than being in the movie when it, when it comes to the volatile events, if you know what I mean. All right. Uh, debt ceiling. Uh, by the way, I will put a link in the show notes that has uh, explanations of the 1790 default, the 1861 default, and 1933, which was a technical involved default, but not really a default. Uh, and of course, 1979. So this says 2013 default. I'm starting to think that shutdowns might be included in there, right? Because that was a government shutdown in 2013, right? So I'm not sure. Maybe don't trust chat GPT so much. I'm just kidding. I know you love, I know you really love it, by the way. You're enjoying it. I'm telling you, it's, I was wrong about it. I made fun of it. I, you know, asked it dumb questions. If you know how to prompt it correctly, the output is, is pretty incredible. And, you know, the training data is only through, it depends on the version, but by training data, it means like it's one of them stops in 2021, the other one in, in 2022. It means it doesn't have any information past those days. So if you're like, hey, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? It doesn't know because it doesn't have that data. But um, all right. You know, the other thing I wanted to bring up too is the, the recession stuff, Jay. Um, and and I, I'm tired of talking about it. I know you are too. The The bank credit thing is is a little bit interesting. And I heard a really good analogy with if U.S. banks are tightening lending standards, is that, in effect, another rate hike? And we were looking at a chart from, this is from Charlie Bellello on Twitter, and it's U.S. net percentage of banks reporting tightening standards for C&I loans to large and middle market firms. It was 46%. And our audience can't see this, but when it gets higher, that means more constrictive. And you had a spike in 2020, that was a recession. 2008, 2009, that's a recession. 01, 90 to 91. I'll always remind people, and I will not stop saying this, the 1990 recession was a recession, but it's a good example of not every recession has to be a really bad one. But Jay, is this kind of a, a de facto tightening of rates? Is this a, sort of like the equivalent of raising rates when you have constriction in, in lending, right? Well, uh, yeah. And, you know, without, I mean, looking at commercial and industrial loans versus, say, 
you know, residential individual loans, right? I guess there's a little bit of a difference there. I think, um, you know, so what's that mean when you tighten lending standards, right? It means either the they don't lend, right? Or they're going to lend at a higher rate, right? Because they feel, you know, they they don't want to take as much risk on what they're lending, right? My is that a fair way to just simplify what that means? No, it's I think it's very fair. Yeah. So so okay, so yeah, so even though rates haven't moved, the borrower is effectively paying more for that loan or they have to put more money down, right? Or have more collateral which again is tightening and, you know, you have, you know, uh, uh, less ability to leverage your balance sheet, all of those kinds of things. So, yeah. So then, so then expenditures go down, right? This is all kind of, they're all linked together. Um, I, you know, when I look at this, uh, uh, the, you know, the chart, I just, but I, I don't know what that means when they say they've, you know, tightened their lending standards, what degree it means. It could be a little bit, some of these might be higher than others. But I listen. It's it is it is uh, convenient that the spikes that Charlie shows on this chart seem to coincide with when there is a recession. So uh, we're not at the levels of the last, you know, the highs of the last three times. Um, there was a spike in what's that spike there, Derek? Right after ninety six, like ninety eight, where it doesn't get you know quite above forty percent. But there was no recession. So. You know, and then again, as we've said, what's, you know, what is that really going to mean for us? You know, having a recession, I'm not sure. But does it, I mean, look, but this is what the, the, the Fed is trying to create anyway, right? Slow down spending. I mean, that's really essentially in order to fight inflation, they're trying to slow down spending. And so good. This is, this is a good thing. I don't, I mean, for them, right? I'm not, the, the borrowers are paying more. But yeah, I mean, this could definitely be, I mean, it feels like it's the result of the Fed action. And I'm not surprised that they are tightening lending standards, especially with, you know, the most forecasted recession ever. I don't know if that's true, but it feels that way that's coming this year, uh, according to everybody. Then, yeah, okay, this makes sense. Like, you're going to want to be careful how much you lend. Like, I get it. I do think the commercial space is going to change is changing right quite a bit after 2020 and you know office space and working from home and things like that are just probably impacting that market um so who knows right i think there's a lot of things that are pushing this up here but i mean the chart looks pretty convincing with you know potential outliers here and there but then what this is predicting a recession derek or are we in one already because it seems like when this spikes the recession's kind of already were in it well that's one of my working theories that we are already in a mild recession i have no idea if that's going to be the case you know the the national bureau of economic research will of course tell us 9 months from now if we're in a recession today but yeah i don't know i also think that I mean, obviously, com- you would think commercial real estate, but sometimes the most obvious thing doesn't necessarily play out. Like if you Wait, if you on. said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing I would say too is that what's what's the old thing? If if you owe a bank a million dollars, they own you. If you owe them a billion dollars, you own the bank. Isn't that the old saying? I, I mean, I don't know if it used a billion, but yes, of course, right? Or a hundred million. I, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff has to get worked out. And 
there's probably a mismatch on what buildings are valued. I mean, I have no idea. I don't, I'm not in the commercial real estate you know, space. I'm, I'm a pure tourist when it comes to this stuff. But I, I just think this has to sort of set itself out. And I don't know what you do with some of those properties in downtown areas where people aren't coming back to. But to me, it's just if you have commercial real estate loans that are out there and you've got exposure as a bank, do you want a lot more of them? And the answer is probably not right now, but I don't know what it means long-term. I did want to ask you though, Jay, there, did you have anything to add on that? No, I was going to like to just kind of bring it over to, you know, maybe like the residential space, which doesn't show up on this chart. And, you know, it's, I think there's an article in, um, in the, uh, the journal this week about how, you know, inventories are still, uh, low because there's not a lot of sellers because people don't want to give up their low uh, rate mortgages. And they're almost like, well, what am I going to do? Like move and get a house and I got to pay 6% while I'm paying three now, right? I'm not going to buy as much house. And so that's, that's kind of uh, uh, maybe in a fake way, keeping housing prices higher because people just don't want to sell, right? So you, if you need to move and you need to buy a house, you have to pay what's out there because inventory is lower because there's just less sellers. Not because they don't want to sell their property. It's because they don't want to have to buy a new one at a higher rate. So it's an interesting article that, uh, that I read there. So, you know, when I think about this and, and it got me thinking about, you know, the valuation of commercial uh, property and co- it being collateral when you want to, you know, take out a second loan against it, you know, that could be a lot of it because you might not have that same problem in the commercial space as you do in the residential space, right? Where, you know, people will sell commercials business, right? Whereas residential is personal. So there could be a difference there and a little break between those two. And I'm not, again, I'm not sure what that really means, right? We're not real estate experts, but it seems to be the trend, the way things are going and housing prices are staying high probably in in a non-real way. And at some point that may break. The CMBS market also does reflect that where spreads have widened, meaning um, commercial mortgage-backed securities, the, the demanded yield on those, and we say the spread above, let's say, treasuries, that has gotten higher, meaning those have gone lower in price than the bonds, yields go up. So that's already reflected in the market. Uh, I did want to ask you though about this new call for short selling ban. This wasn't on our list, Jay, but I'm, I'm throwing it into the conversation because I forgot to put it on our list. And I'm against banning short sales. And I, I think it's a bad idea. We saw this in, what was it, 2008, 2009. And what you wind up seeing is since you can't short, all of that floods into the options market and volatility really got pumped up because if you can't short, the only way to express that, well, it's not the only way, but you know, you have to buy puts or if you want to hedge, you can't short stock. And so I'm really against this, but all of a sudden there's been some calls for, Hey, we should ban short selling on the regional banks. Any thoughts on this, Jay? Uh, I'm with you, right? There's a really, the amount of volume that's short on the market is usually, you know, pretty low, right? I think on average, you know, 5% is kind of what that looks like. So it's not this huge component of the market, but when there's blood in the water, the short sellers show up. And I can understand a little bit of the logic of, hey, give these banks a minute, 
to figure it out, right, before you pound them from 50 bucks to $2 a share. But quite frankly, um, this is this is the market, right? And I don't, I don't, you know, look, I understand that when banks fail, there's jobs that are lost, there's personal, uh, there's, there's individual people that are affected. But when you talk about the financial markets, taking away that way of expressing um, uh, the importance of uh, a two-sided market, I don't, I, I'm with you. I disagree about enacting a rule like that. And then the thing that it does is it makes option prices go up as well. They inflate them uh, uh, because now the only way to you know protect or bet against, not the only way, like you said, but a very popular way is you're going to go buy puts, right? Or you're going to sell calls, right? So it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we'll, you, you'll the money will find a way these days. There's tools all over the place to find a way to do it. So you might as well let them just short if that's what they want to do. There's also a function of short sellers. And if, if they weren't allowed, there wouldn't be the incentive for firms or individuals to, to really do deep research. And the, the example that comes to mind is, was it Jim Chanos and Enron? I think it was Chanos, where he was a short seller. And I, I haven't researched this, but I kind of remember the, the Enron people during earnings calls, like making fun of the short sellers and as we, of course, know now, Enron was uh, smoke and mirrors the way they were doing their accounting. But there's been instances where short sellers, I mean, Hindenburg puts out research and they bet against companies. And I, by the way, I mean, as we saw with uh, GameStop, short selling is, is kind of risky because if there's any sort of short squeeze, and mark, you know, the market or the, the company they're, they're short on that. I think it's a tough way to trade, but high risk, high reward way of trading for sure. Us as options traders, we'd say there's, there's, there's a more risk controlled way to do it, but we'll save that for another broadcast. Sure. Certainly right. To find your risk. And you know, it's not easy running a short portfolio if anybody's ever run one. Right. But there are some advantages right, where you could kind of continually add to your short. Actually, if you're effectively running a short book and your shorts are working, meaning the underlying is dropping, margin is actually re-released to you and you could continue to short without adding any more collateral into your account. So there, I mean, there, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's just a different way to run a, you know, long portfolio like most people do. And so I think that's why a lot of folks don't short, but the tactics of running a short portfolio really dictate that you have to continue to short or you have to keep uh, adding to your position, which of course then adds more pressure on whatever you are uh, uh, shorting. So what do I, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't go into too much detail, but I'll give a really quick example. Like if you short a stock that went, that goes from, and you have a hundred shares and it goes from, you know, 10 to five, you're like, all right, I just made $500. But the next time that the stock drops 50% from five to two and a half, you don't, you don't make that $500. You're only going to make half of it. So you have to actually double your shares to experience the same profit on the next 50% drop. Whereas with long portfolios, if it goes up 50%, you made 50%. It goes up another 50%, you make the 50%. So it's one of those things that a short seller has to continue to be able to add to their position um, because there's only so far a stock can go down, right? So uh, the, when you're managing a short portfolio, the tactics of it are very different than a long portfolio. So I think that's the other reason why not so many do it. But the ones that are doing it are typically more sophisticated 
And like you said, it's a harder way to make a living, I think. Bill Fleckenstein, he's, you've seen him on CNBC. His quote, I think, was, it's a lot of work to short a stock. You have to be right. Because if you don't get it right, like you said, I mean, there, there's a, a finite amount of room to zero. And depending upon the price of the stock. But you just, I mean, we're not going to go into the margin of all this. But like, if you get a rally in a stock you're short, like you're going to have to get out of it. And stock has to be available to to be held short, and you're paying interest to hold that. And depending upon how shorted something is, that interest can can pile up. Um, back back at the Ameritrade days, Jay, I interviewed for that Market Huddle webcast we used to we used to do, and a lot of people used to attend those. Uh, this guy guy wrote a book on uh, short selling, and I remember off air talking to him and and. He was sort of expressing to me, he, he hesitates to even get into a lot of it because just how difficult it is for like a retail investor to be short and stay short. He's like, it's really more of a, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. And I, I just thought that was fascinating because you just think, well, I just sell a stock and hopefully it goes down. I buy it and, at a lower price and I make money. But there's a lot more that goes into it, Jay. Yep. No, that, that's true. A lot more that goes into it. And it almost, it almost feels like, you know, it just not that it feels wrong, right? But you're really betting against the market. You're a contrarian in that scenario, usually when you're shorting a stock. And I, I used to liken it to say it's like Christmas in the Caribbean. Like, yeah, it's still Christmas, but it doesn't feel like Christmas, but it's still Christmas, right? So it's just, a, you know, a fun analogy I've used in the past to describe when you're making money while everybody else is losing, right? It's just a... Um, uh, that's short sellers have to deal with. What was the one? There was a Netflix documentary about. It was a multi-level marketing company. Oh, I can't remember the name. It doesn't matter. And uh, it was one of the the people we see on CNBC. And basically, he was shorted, and he went and made a bunch of presentations. Made a bunch of presentations. Made a pretty convincing case that it was, you know, I'm using their words, a quote unquote Ponzi scheme. And the stock never went down. It just kept going up and up. And I think eventually he threw in the towel and, uh, and, and walked away from it. But you're, you're talking about Herb, Herbalife, right? That was the scenario. That was and it. And it was uh, Pershing Square was the fund and I'm uh, Pershing Square Capital, right? And I'm trying to remember who was the, um, oh my gosh, who was the main like uh, manager, owner slash portfolio manager of Pershing Square. Um, that and and actually there were some kind of on air battles between him and Bill, Bill Ackman, Ackman, Jay. Yeah. Bill Ackman, thank you. It was Bill Ackman. And there were some on air discussions we I'm gonna say battles between him and Carl Icahn, which coincidentally, Derek, Bill Icahn's firm has been the target of I think Hindenburg this past week. And they are being shorted heavily and I think there's all of a sudden some investigators, uh, some regulators showed up on Carl Icahn's door. So it's funny, kind of uh, full circle on that one a little bit. Maybe not funny for Carl Icahn right now, but uh, it's uh, it just seems like, uh, you know, that's the way the market will always, you know, remind you and humble you <laughs> about who you are <laughs> and what business you're in. I haven't read it. I'll, if I get some time, because I do enjoy reading those pieces there. uh but I, I thought his his company was almost 
wasn't it really tightly held by him and maybe a few family members? I don't really know too much about his that stock, but uh, uh, Carl Icahn, you mean? Yeah, Carl Icahn's. Mm, I mean, it's a publicly traded stock, right? So uh, you know, he has their shares outstanding, which means someone could short them. Yeah, I just I I'm speaking like uh, I don't really know, but I, I thought he he held most of them. Maybe future podcasts, right? There you go. We'll see what happens with that. <laughs> Pick a fight with Carl Icahn and uh, and Bill Ackman. All right, Jay. Those aren't fights I feel like picking, by the way, at all. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Although CNBC was all too kind to give them, I mean, they would give both of them like what our infomercials on. Oh, the drama. They love the drama. Yes, of course. That's what, yeah. Anyway, maybe we shouldn't get started on the media. I'm waiting for him to call in with uh, Wapner, the, the halftime host. Didn't yep. he used to call into that show? Maybe they'll get him yeah, on. Yeah, they don't air. It's great. All right, Jay. So for recommendations this week, we were we couldn't think of any, so we asked our friend ChatGPT. And uh you're you're a Marvel person. I am not, but uh one of the ones they they gave us was WandaVision and that has uh, among other people Paul Bettany who is in Margin Call. He's great. So is that a good recommendation from ChatGPT? Yeah, I mean, he plays the vision, and uh, I listen. I enjoyed it. So you're right. As a Marvel person, it's kind of mandatory viewing uh, to watch it. It was definitely a unique way to uh, uh, portray what was going on with uh, with Wanda, who's also known as the, uh, the the Red Witch. And so, what it's it's kind of almost mandatory to watch it before a few of them are. It was a nice transition show to watch after you know the whole. Uh, uh, the Infinity Stone series stuff ended, and then they started launching into the new, uh, the Doctor Strange, and some other ones that came out after that. So yeah, no, it was it was good, but you have to like it. it was interesting in the fact that they like went through like these different periods of you know family life in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. Like it was an interesting progression, and it was very curious how they you know when you saw the previews of it, how they were going to do it, but it ended up being fine. So if you like the Marvel stuff, you've probably already watched it. Uh, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it wasn't bad. So that Ch- chat GPT said, what, this was a very popular show in 2021. Yeah. I said, you know, write a, a two bullet point paragraph about a popular show in 2021. It gave us WandaVision also gave us on Netflix, the queen's gambit, which I watched that. I liked it. Apparently is it chess.com or there's an app when that aired, they had like a massive influx of people going and playing chess online. And I think there, I mean, that there's a lot of game theory in that meaning, you know, kind of quote unquote game theory, but it was just, it was really interesting. I don't know if it was built based upon a a real uh, story or not, but I enjoyed that. So I would, I would support their recommendation on, on that show. Would you? Absolutely. I, I, uh, that one totally grabbed me. I would definitely put it up there. Um, on, on like, you know, it's a limited series. I, you know, it wasn't, uh, like multiple, you're not going to get multiple seasons out of it. So it's not a huge, uh, uh, commitment. There might be eight, maybe there are eight of them. Um, and, uh, maybe eight or seven. And so, uh, yeah, I would absolutely, you know, recommend Queen's Gambit. I thought it was very good. Very on a lot of different levels, but tonight and it's yep. And you know what? Hey, it ends up being an American versus a Russian at the end, and you know 
seems to be a popular topic these days. Well, and it was popular back in what, 1980? When was Rocky for? <laughs> yes, against, against, was it Drago? Is that who he is? Uh... Drago, that's right. Yeah. 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 He must break. He no, must and break. that was, uh, it's a trivia question, but who sang the, uh, the song for, uh, that No Way Out song when he's training, the training montage? And it's John Tepper is the, is the artist who did that song. So there you go. Okay. Great. It was a good song with, with Rocky working out. By the way, I'm still watching Survivor, and it's probably the only show on network TV that I still watch. I don't know what to say about that. Well, you remember when I first came out in 2020, first it was, I mean, there had been reality shows before, The Real World and MTV, but that was probably the one of the biggest reality shows on network TV and that was, I think, the first time that a network put out a new show in the summer. So that that premiered, I think it was 2020, not 20, or, or 2000. 2000. Yeah, I was like, not 2020, man. That thing's been on forever. Yeah. yeah. The year 2000, yes. I've, I've, uh, I've used the Google machine. I didn't have to use ChatGPT to find out when it came out. Google told me. I mean, do you, do you remember how big that was back then? It was massive. I do. And, you know, I didn't really watch it then. I still don't. And hats off to you watching it 23 years. So I've had missed some years. I came back to it. Oh, okay. To it. Okay. Anyway. All right. So I'm not saying you should watch it, but I, I'm, it's, it's still like from a game theory perspective. But I, I respect the first people who did it because there really wasn't a template. Now, you know, people have done studies on how to play Survivor and people have written you know, doctoral thesis on uh, how to play and the gameplay and who to vote off when and things. But that first, that first one ever where the, um, that was, that was interesting. Anyway. You know, we'll, no Deal was like the same thing, right? You remember that Howie Mandel show, uh, you know, Deal or No Deal with the, the suitcase? Yeah. Same thing. There's a definitely game theory on that one, right? I was always like, go until there's no, you know, you only got one big number, then that's it. You can't risk losing the last big number, but keep going as long as there's more than two. Some people follow that. I also used to use that as an example. So when I, I teach, you know, I've, I think I've shared, I, I teach economics and finance. Um, I, I say on the side, it doesn't mean I don't take it seriously, but you know, it's something I do uh, aside from what I normally do. That's why you're the professor. There, there you go. The expected value though. And so when you think about the Expected value is basically, let's say you have $5 amounts on the board still. And that means you have a 20% chance of getting any of those. And basically, it's, it's the probabilities times you know, the value. And then they, Howie Mandel gets the call from the banker, and they offer you money to stop playing. And it's interesting because normally, so if you look at the expected value, if the offer is higher than the expected value, you should take that. If it's lower, you should still play. The thing is, you're, if you knock out one of the big numbers, that's the problem because now your expected value goes way down. But yeah, it's a great example of, of that concept. I haven't seen a lot of people whip out a spreadsheet in the middle of being on the show, though. So you, st- you need a quick rule, right? A quick process for figuring it out. Like you said, if you knock out one of the big numbers, it's going to change your value. But you should definitely understand. I feel like you and I could probably do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> well, like if yet if if it was a million dollars, one of the cases is a million dollars. One of the cases is a dollar. Fifty percent times a million is five hundred thousand. So your expected value is basically five hundred thousand for playing. 
And so if you're offered more than that or close to that, you should probably take it. If you're offered a lot less, then you have to make the decision. You know, obviously if you pull the the million dollar case and all you have left is is a penny, well, that's problematic, right? So it's almost like uh, you know, and I probably should un, un, shouldn't, shouldn't dig this one up, but it's almost like our high probability option trade where we get you could make say one percent for taking less than one percent risk. That's the same kind of thing when you make investing decisions. So the the it can apply right to investing for sure, especially in the options. Yeah, very uh, VAR value at risk, probabilities. I mean, all, all this stuff. In the end, it's just math. As to quote the guy from, from Margin Call, uh, they said, you're a rocket scientist. So what led you here? He said, well, it's, it's all just numbers, right? So there you have it. All right, Jay. I think we'll, we'll end it there. Excellent movie, by the way. Yes. You should, I mean, that should be a recommendation every week. Yeah. Especially when you're, uh, yeah, uh, you know, let's just leave it at that. Very good movie. Yep. All right, Jay, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. See ya.